0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Lion's Guide podcast, where we empower you to be a lifelong leader by exploring the stories of our guests and gaining insights from the lessons they've learned. I also interview other subject matter experts and review books and other resources, really all designed to help bring you new ideas and perspective to help you establish clarity, have courage, and lead the way. I'm your host, Dale Walls, founder of Lion's Guide, and on this episode, we've got Mr. Robert Party, and Rob is... One of those rare individuals who embraces change and lives by a philosophy, which he calls possibility in action." Rob was born in New York City and also lived in Abu Dhabi, Dubai, after being recruited by one of the world's largest sovereign wealth funds, the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority back in 1997. It was shortly after accepting the position that he and his wife were confronted with an extreme life event that shook the very foundation of all their hopes and dreams. Desiree, his wife, was diagnosed with late late stage breast cancer. In this episode, we explore how Robert navigated such a difficult time and went on to reassess his life and the lessons he's since learned now as an author and international speaker living in the same small Italian village his great-grandfather immigrated from. It's an awesome story. You're going to love it. So If you like the sound of that, before we get started, hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss any of our other great guests and content. And as always, this podcast is sponsored by Lions Guide. And if you've been tuning in, getting value from the show, then hey, do yourself a favor. Go out to lionsguide.com and join our community. Maybe even pick up some Lions Guide gear out there. For no cost to you, our community, you get access to all kinds of free exclusive content to, to include yet to be released episodes of the podcast, we got reading lists out there, live virtual training events. Uh, we've got a private online group to engage with other growth minded members, and a whole lot more. So again, joining the Lions Guide community is free, and I'm putting it all together to help you break out of your rut and/or break through to that next best version of yourself by establishing clarity, building your courage, and being the true leader of your life. So go check it out now. Go to LionsGuide.com and join today. With that said, let's start the show. <laughs> everyone. On today's Lion Sky podcast, we've got this Rob Hardy, uh, who I met on LinkedIn, who reached out to me, thankfully. Um, you know, he listened to one of my uh, episodes with uh, Craig Stanland, uh, you know, And I think, I don't even think we did an intro call. We have, you know, I was just like, yeah, man, I looked at your story or whatever. And I was like, man, let's, get, let's just get you on, you know? And, and so here we are, I think a little while later, a few weeks later, and, you know, Rob's an author, he's uh, an international keynote speaker, you know, transformational life coach, he's got an awesome story to tell. Rob, happy to have you on here today and uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do.
1: Well, it's a super pleasure. So thank you very, very much. So um, I wear a bunch of different hats, actually. So I'm an ex-investment banker that decided to change everything in 2014, basically, and became a life coach. And from life coaching, I ventured into writing and keynote speaking. And funny enough, after my first book, I challenged myself to publish two more books within the span of a year. I Mm. just felt like I had a lot to say. (laughs) So I just said, all right, I'm going to sit down and, you know, three different stories, very unique, but same type of concept and have found a new passion. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: So uh, that's quite the swing. It feels like to go from, you know, investment banker through to author, transformational life coach. But as far as that's concerned, like, what got you there? What what got you into investment banking? Like, you know, where did you grow up? Why did why did you why did you go that route?
1: Sure, Um, the route in a way was almost out of survival. Uh, I'll be perfectly honest about that. So, uh, a New York City kid. Grew up with an abusive alcoholic father. Which borough? Um, well, I was born in the Bronx, but we lived in Queens. Then I was out on Long Island. Then I moved back to the Upper East Side. I, when all I finally, Yeah, I was all over the place. <laughs> all so, But I, I was born in the Bronx. Uh, my parents were in Harlem. So then we moved out to Queens. Really for me, like growing up with, with an alcoholic dad, I just wanted to get away. And when I started to look at all the different options in front of me as a kid, and plus look, you know, I'm a Gordon Gecko, dynasty, Dallas type kid, you know? (laughs) So that was the environment that was around me when I was young. And I was like, money is going to save me. Money is going to get me out of here. So I decided to, to follow that road. And honestly, to tell you the truth, it was fueled by anger and That was a motivating force because it kept me focused on the objective to get away, to get away, to get away, but it wasn't a passion. And The more I evolved, I started to question that field, but life circumstances kept me in it, let's say.
0: Was the anger truly that? It was just anger at your circumstance and you just wanted more or specifically- the,
1: your father in the relationship. Oh, ang- ang- anger towards my father, for sure. Uh, when, I was, when I was 13, I finally was physically strong enough to defend myself. And that was the last time my dad ever ever touched me. Uh, but I held on to that, let's say, contrast of, I don't want to be anything like you. And I'm going to do everything I can to be different than you. So Mm. that was, let's say, the anger. Uh, You know, I also for many, many years harbored a lot of anger, hidden anger uh, that I had to confront towards my mom because, you know, she would ask me to apologize after I had been hit. (laughs) And, you know, it was just to make peace in the house. But it was that thing of I can't believe, you know, you're not protecting me type thing. That, That was buried down. I wasn't really aware of that. That came out later in life. But, you know, my dad, I forgave him. I understood once I really understood how sad he was and alcoholism, but I never made peace with him. I offered him, there was a point in time in our relationship that he reached out to me and wanted to start a relationship again. And I said, okay, prove you're different and then I'll meet you in the middle. And he wouldn't accept that. And to me, that's 24, 25. You know, by that point in time, I I found what, you know, we term today as agency, right? I think it was building agency the whole time from the moment I took the rocky swing at him, (laughs) you know, after drinking my three eggs in the morning. But, um, you know, it was in that point in time that I said, wait a minute. There's nothing that obligates any of us to have to like, love, or respect someone just because of a title. And I need to, that's where I learned about boundaries, right? I I started putting boundaries in place and I'm like, you know, yeah, it would be nice for us to have a normal relationship. But after everything we've been through and the amount of times you promised things would change, show me it first. And that was the last time I heard from him. Even though we were still married to my mom, we still saw each other on Christmas and and everything else. But it was a hello, and that was it. And he and I never spoke.
0: Is he uh, is he still living or deceased?
1: No, no, he passed away in uh, nineteen ninety nine. So and okay, okay, so it's been a while. Yeah, it's uh, you know, my mom still. It's it's funny how people could look back on things after events and she still carries a lot of anger towards her life and that he died young and so in her mind now she looks back on it was just a wonderful happy marriage and you know life together but you know I, I remember him once being so drunk that he passed out at my grandparents house and they put him in the back seat of the the car and I think we had like a, a big Regal, it was it was an old car, you know, like the big the big seats, you didn't still have the two separate seats. So I sat in the front and my mom was terrified to drive over a bridge. She had, hadn't ever driven over a bridge. And to get back home, we had to go over the throg's neck. And I remember her grabbing the wheel, just saying over and over again, please God for the children, please God for the children. And I'm thinking to myself, Now when she talks about everything, I'm like, wow, you just totally forgot some of the stuff that was going on.
0: I recently finished that book, um, uh, The Body Keeps Score. Um, And I learned just a lot about just what trauma is, what it's rooted in, how people handle it, uh, how much childhood trauma such as yours, like there really is. And it's just the... It just keeps paying itself forward until it's truly solved for. Is kind of what I came out of that that book, Um, you know. So certainly I can uh, uh, very compassionate with kind of you going through that and, and even the the rest of the story, right? The tentacles of the the trauma imposed by your father, like on your mother, and how she looks at it today, and in in essence, it's kind kind of covered up. You know, Um, I don't know. It's 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 really a great book to read. I mean, you, you may have read it.
1: No, I have, I have read it. I have read it, which is, it's, it's an amazing book. Um, there, there's also a woman, she has a, a podcast, something like Everybody Has a Story, um, and follows that same type of philosophy as well. Uh, but the, the thing about my dad, like I, I do remember some, some nice things, but I'm actually super grateful that he was my father. I am super grateful for the way I grew up. Because I learned some skills that really were needed later in life. And it wasn't just about setting goals and achieving and understanding understanding necessarily uncertainty, but it was really, I say it all the time, it was a boot, cast, a boot camp in contrast. I saw what I didn't want to be. I saw the effects of not making conscious decisions. I couldn't define that back then as a kid, of course. But the more I evolved, and I I was married to an amazing woman that was light years ahead of me, but I, I realized how important it is to be intentional and conscious and not let things overwhelm us to a point where, like in my dad's case, would numb to the point of, not even being conscious of what he was technically doing. And so I, as crazy as it sounds, I, I'm so thankful. And I have this this philosophy that I, I I have a life philosophy, but part of that life philosophy is asking myself all the time if I'm happy with who I am. Because if I can say yes, that means I have to thank everything that happened. All the good and all the bad if I say no, what's under our control is to say, okay, well, what can I change? What do I need to accept? But let me work on it. We're not static. So if we're not happy at that moment, that's just an indication to change something. But it's not because of things. We're not victims of the the issue itself if we unpackage it. If we let it sit there, and I'm a I'm a a big Harry Potter fan, superhero fan. I mean, throw me in that camp of all that stuff, right? And the reason Voldemort was so powerful to a certain extent was he was he who shall not be named. If we don't sit there and look in the dark and name it, it has more control over us. Once we name it, whether it's fear, whether it's shame, whatever it is, then we can start to actually do something about it. And that's where I learned anger is not constructive at all, right? That's where the shift came that I realized, no, anger motivated me, but I wasn't necessarily building. I was motivated and I was running away and whatever, but was I really building the life I wanted? And that asked me to look inside and start to put those pieces together.
0: Yeah, I love that. So, and and, and what I love about that is, you know, it's one of the things like I choose to talk a lot about clarity, right? Because like, I always love the analogy, like if you can shine the light on something, and as you said, if you can put a, a label on it, if you can define it, you can act on it, right? And that's why I feel like, you know, clarity leads to confidence, right? Because once you shine that light on something, once you give that name to something, like you feel empowered to move against it and solve for it. But so long as it's, you know, the unknown, you're almost in that fearful, you know, uh, fear the unknown kind of frozen element, you know, that we find ourselves in sometime until we we shine a light on it or we come to like, what's the root of the problem or what is that called or whatever. And even in this day, like I find it all the time when, oh, we were talking about, uh, I was talking to someone, a, a, a recent example, I was talking to someone uh, who said, I learned that my family growing up was emotionally dishonest. And I was like, what? And he explained to me, it's like, yeah, we were never honest about how we really felt, what was really going on and whatever. And I was like, Whoa, like you just brought clarity to something that I've seen like over and over again, I've lived and, and wow. Wow, I can move on that. I don't know, it, but that happens to me a lot, and I and that's why I, I find clarity so important, as as you describe with the, the part about putting labels
1: and names to things. Yeah, if I could just jump in, I mean, clarity and confidence, one hundred percent. I'm I'm right on board with you because up until that point, we feel powerless. That that's the that's the whole thing. A lot of times, you know what we might. Not be able to solve everything, but if we stay in that dark spot, I, I remember somebody telling me, you know, um, they they were afraid that they had a crocodile under the bed, and that's that's what they use even today as 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 an adult. Like that's my crocodile under the bed. Uh, you will sit mm-hmm. there thinking that you're powerless against something, but when you do take the first step to at least look at it, it has diminished the threat significantly
0: yeah absolutely it's um it's it's just I, I don't know it's just a really really powerful element of you have know, taken action is just really bringing clarity to what what the what the crocodile under the bed really is you know and how big is it um Jocko Willink wrote an awesome kids book about that uh it was it was called uh Mikey and the Dragons uh and
1: I bought it for my kids and it's just you know, have you have you heard of or seen that at all I've heard of it, but I can't even like recall the cover or anything like that. But I have heard of it because one of the <laughs> yeah, books I it, wrote is a it's a silly adult based of- book, but it's a yeah. kid's book. Yeah,
0: yeah, kind of. I mean, it's definitely a kid's book. Um, Mikey and the Dragons, and it's just about like you know the king is the king of the village because he could always go slay the dragons in the cave and keep them from coming to the the town or whatever. And the the king passes. And now it's up to Mikey, the the young prince, to go slay these dragons. And he's so fearful because, you know, he's thinking they're dragons, you know, and um he goes on and he he does just like what we're saying, right? He goes in, he he shines a light on the cave and realizes like they're actually these little like puppy dragons and whatever. Um and, and you know, but he was It was, it was something that nothing to be afraid of, you know, but once he faced it, he he didn't realize that until he faced it and, you know, shine a light on it, so to speak. And it was pretty, pretty neat story just about, you know, how to, how to have courage and, and, and just to this point for, for kids to really go, go find out what you're really afraid of. And, and so that you can move. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty good little book. Sure. So with regard to, you know, your, your growth transition, Rob uh, so you grew up, you had, had this hardship, you, you got out. So what did you, when were you like really out on your own and were you straight into college from there? Like, I mean, I mean, did you, did you come from like wealth where college was covered or did you have to put yourself through school? Like, and I appreciate like your, your drive, right? That, Hey, I'm, I, I see hundred percent what I don't want. Now I'm going to go
1: take a 180
0: and go this opposite direction. But how do you. How'd you take it from there once you're
1: kind of free and, and on your own? That's such a great question. And, and I'm dating myself because back when I was a kid, you could find work when you were 13 years old. So, you know, your mom just had to sign like this piece of paper. So I decided at that point that I wouldn't rely at all on my my father for anything, my parents. But of course, my mom did help me out to a certain extent. But I started loading delivery trucks before going to school. 5 a.m. in the morning, I'd go there and, you know, sacks of potatoes that were heavier than me to throw on a a delivery truck. And um, so I worked every job possible to make sure I had money. And my goal was I was going to go away to university. And I studied as best as I could. Uh, And the thing was, though, I didn't save enough of money, of course, to go to any school that let's say was far enough away but i did get to go to stony brook university which i got to live there and so it was close enough where everyone expected me that i was supposed to come home on the weekends but i never did and that was pretty much it as as soon as i got out of the house and went to university and i worked while i was in university of course as well uh because there was just never let's say enough of money but I put myself through school, got a job directly out of out of college, and never sort of looked back. You know, I also, w- while I was in university, mm-hmm. met the woman of my dreams. Um, I didn't know it at the time because I was basically like, hey, you know what, I don't want a relationship, thank you very much type thing because of the example I guess I saw in my 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 family and I wanted sort of freedom. Though I was also looking to, let's say, I don't want to say marry into money, but I was looking towards people that would get me into a new circle, right? I didn't want to stay in the, the lower middle class family with my my my, my father or my parents. So, um, you know, my wife didn't present that way when I met her, and then she just blew me away. <laughs> so, so what? How old are you when this is this is happening? Oh, I um I was nineteen. She was she was seventeen when we met. And f- funny enough, I, a couple of weeks after meeting her, uh, and I think because she stretched me so far out of my comfort zone from everything that I knew. Uh, you know, I did not grow up in a, an extended family where women really had, let's say, say. I grew up in a very Italian American family uh, from that generation you know, the women were in the kitchen cooking and the men were, you know, hanging out in the living room or at the table and all of that type of stuff. And she was just so completely different and so opinionated and, you know, challenged me on every belief or thought I had. And I remember when I first told her about the situation with my dad and everything like that. One of the first things she said to me, she said, you'll never be able to carry that your whole life. And I was just like, well, who are you? For, like you're 17. What are you saying to me? You know, uh, but she had a lot of inherent wisdom, uh, w- w- which was fantastic. And, uh, from that point forward, the idea I proposed to her a year after meeting her and the idea of rebuilding a life with her changed the motivation from anger to something much greater, which, which was joy and love. And there was just, there was hope for something really, truly satisfying. So that, that changed also my mentality somewhat. And at some point in time, I actually did think of leaving investment banking because the more that I was learning, I, I remember we even had the conversation, she and I, and she's like, well, you know what? Uh, she decided to do an MD PhD at Mount Sinai. And she said, you know what, when I finish the whole program, because it's like an eight year program. But when I finish the program, why don't you go back to school and I'll support us. And I started toying around with different ideas, but life um, threw us a curveball where it wouldn't have made any sense to change my career one for the security of having a job and two because of the money that it it, it offered us so uh, i st- i stuck with it
0: well one i love that two i love it my my wife and i are high school sweethearts as well so we we've been together since we i was 17 she was 16 got married at uh 18 19 uh you know cool. so I, yeah and i i love that part of the story because i i didn't know that coming in today i i know a bit about desiree's story but yes how awesome is that man um so you
1: guys got to grow together like yeah it's 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 a it's it's fantastic i mean it was you know looking back i realized that as let's say kids even though we were young adults but let's say kids right there's a lot more flexibility Mm. uh than i think when you're you're set in your ways and we really we we had such aligned values that we were really able to build a, a really strong relationship. And it was funny because Desiree being the doctor, she always talked about how relationship is like DNA. So, you know, when it's at its widest part, it takes the two parties to call that out and pull everything back to center. Yep. So, you know, it was like this helix structure, right? And we learned very early on to have Difficult conversations, deep conversations. Like I said, she she questioned me from the very beginning that that we met. And you know, here I was an economics major, and you know, Ronald Reagan was president, and you know, I was a fan of Ronald. And she's like, "You're, you're crazy," and you know, his economics don't make any sense. And I'm like, "What are you talking about? You don't even study economics." So you know, um, but we were able to really understand that. We were there to create a team, which benefited us immensely uh, during some, some life struggles, you know, and even at the very beginning of our relationship, I mean, we got married very young, she was in medical school, it's not like we had a lot of money. Yeah, I was working as a young investment banker, but you know what, there were many, many nights of hot dogs and peanut butter and honey sandwiches and pasta. Yeah, But we, we wanted to build, we had an idea of what we wanted life to be. And so yeah. those weren't sacrifices. Those were investments in a future life. And we learned, that was part of the way I grew up, right? Because trying to, needing to get away from my father, I didn't look at anything as a sacrifice. You right. know, I wasn't going out with my friends in, in, in high school. I had to work, not a sacrifice. I knew I was going someplace that I defined and yep. that's what mattered. So she and I, we, we had the same philosophy, very cool. Just great, great, great. Yeah, I love it. And
0: even like, I like how you are saying earlier, it sounded like she challenged you, even even though you were working to get out of there, um, she challenged you to look forward, like you know, to the statement that it sounded to me like the statement of you're never gonna be able to carry that. Like to me, it felt like, it. and you tell me if, if you've, it, if i'm seeing it correctly like like it felt like she was challenging you to be forward-leaning right even then even though you were like you were working to get out of that but but even instead of like looking back into your why being to get away from him to turn your why into this joyous life together with her and so
1: on does that make sense am i reading it right that 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 makes 100 sense you know I've been blessed to learn lessons from such amazing people in my life. My father's mother, my paternal grandmother was my savior as as a child and taught me a lot about looking forward in life. Then there, there was Desiree and the idea of you're not going to be able to carry that forever was a conversation that she and I had around energy, effort. Like, you know, there's a lot of energy to carry anger. We think it is motivating because it's, it's, it's a fuel, but it, it absorbs almost as much as it's giving. Mm. And what I learned very early on because of having met Desiree and because of seeing, you know, I grew up if, somebody made a crank call to the house, my father would beat me because that meant that people didn't like me and I was a Mm -hmm. horrible kid. So I grew up with a belief maybe that I was not necessarily likable Mm -hmm. and to be in, and first Desiree Drop dead gorgeous, (laughs) drop dead gorgeous, you know, um, blonde cheerleader. I mean, you know, just the, the American boy's dream. Right. And so it wasn't just that aspect of it. it. It was that she was accepting me for everything that I was. And all of a sudden that was what helped me let go of the anger and realize, you know what, it's not about deconstructing. I have to construct myself. And that was, I, I journaled from basically the time that I can remember. Uh, it was it was the only way I could. I had a very hard time making sense of everything that was going on. It's not like I shared it with my friends, except for one amazing friend who's today. Like the last time I was in the United States, I stayed with him. Um, I've known him for fifty one years, uh, mm-hmm. and I would run to his house for for safety. Like I'd sleep yeah. over his house, and his his family was just amazing. Uh, but I didn't share everything that was going on. So I would write a lot trying to understand all this uncertainty. Hey guys, Dale here. And I wanted to take a quick
0: break to invite you to join the launch of the Lion's Guy community called The Pride. You see, whether it was at work dealing with the demands of the day or maintaining the demands of my life at home, I always seemed to feel like my struggles were unique. Like somehow I was the only one struggling to find joy amidst all the weight that I felt I was carrying each day. And You know, what I've come to realize is that we all have our struggles that we're up against and it's pretty demanding. The only way to rise to those demands is to decide and make the change to adopt a growth mindset, to be what I call a high performer. And that's why I started Lions Guide. I want to help you break through to the next level of you and your ability to not only meet but exceed those demands on you and in doing so, find your joy again. If you're a growth-minded individual ready to make a change, then I'm here for you. And this is how you get started. I invite you to visit lionsguide.com and sign up to join the Pride. The Pride is the Lions Guide community for growth-minded members like you. Once signed up, you'll get special access to all the free content and resources I'm putting out there. You'll also be invited to join my live online events where I host sessions on personal growth and high performance. You'll also be able to engage with other growth-minded members on our private online group. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, as a member, you'll get access not only to all the podcasts, but also the podcasts that have been yet to be released. So get access to all this and more. So break out of that rut, break into your next level, and join me on lionsguide.com, and let's grow together. Go to lionsguide.com and become a member of the Pride today. Now back to the show. I, I love that. And, and even, um, you know, we talked earlier about the body keep score. Um, it, it's mentioned the importance of journal the importance of journaling, even in that book. And, I, and that was an insight for me because I really hadn't ever journaled, but it, it just talked about the simple exercise of like processing things through journaling and uh, in, 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 including two key things, which were the facts and your feelings and just getting that out on paper. I, and it was really powerful. And I went, you know, I went that day and started doing it and it, it you know, it was, it's awesome. So, I mean, and, I, and how did that, do you feel like that attributed to, and, and we won't skip a major part of your story, but like, do you feel that had a lot to do with like your desire to ultimately be an author? Was that contributing to that in, in some ways?
1: That has contributed to every single thing that I've become uh, mm-hmm. 100%. Wow. The, journaling. Now, the, the, the journaling. Now I will say that the writing didn't, didn't come from the journaling. Surprisingly, Um, and another issue, right? Um, I used to love to write and draw when I was a kid and I would get beat for that because that was a non-manly, very feminine type of thing to do. So I was supposed to be out there playing football and doing all those things. I wasn't supposed to be that kid. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, I sort of stuffed it down, but what journaling did more than anything else is, At the beginning, I would just write about everything that's going on and ask a lot of why questions. You know, why does this happen? Why what? And at some point in time, I shifted to what? And that was so critical because I stopped doing an archaeological dig of the whys, which are important. But the what brought me to, so what am I going to do about it? It it brought me into action. And I don't think I could have understood the power of action if I stayed in my head. Because once I started putting it down on paper, I could see, let's, let's say, different strategies. Um, I'm a mind mapper type guy as well, right? Like I'm, I'm all over the place with my thoughts. So writing to a certain extent, all of a sudden said, okay, well, you know what? Okay, what do I want to do, do with this? Well, I want to use that to get to that point. And What's it going to take yeah. to do that? And so that is a philosophy that strengthened over time. And I, I haven't stopped journaling since. And I really can't say when I remember, but maybe, maybe I was 10 or 11. That I, and that was partly because, you know, I couldn't write. I, it's not that I couldn't write, right? Um, but I made a choice of maybe safety uh, and stopped writing, you know, stories and just start to write thoughts that were in my head. And I didn't know what I was doing at the time. But now it's blossomed into a practice that is just absolutely phenomenal. And I never go back. I never look at anything I've written. And I write so incredibly small and so fast that I can't even read it after I've written it. Yeah. But if if there's a key point that comes from it, I put it in a different journal.
0: Is that right? Yeah. So if you, if you see something or something came out, you capture it and put it somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So is that a daily, de- daily thing for you? Like when do, when do you do it? Like when is right before bed, like how do you bed. fit it into your day? Right before bed.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Right before bed. My, my, my practice in, in the morning when I wake up is, is I, I, I meditate, but then I have uh, quotes D- different quotes that have just resonated with me or different pieces of a book that I've read, and I read them in the morning. Mm-hmm. In the evening, I, I, I'm I'm a journaler before I go to bed. And it's because I can then look back and reflect and see maybe, you know, hmm, where did that behavior come from today, right? That's uh, what, what triggered that? Oh, a fear of something or, you know, worry of something, whatever the case is. Or over sometimes over enthusiasm, right? Like where I'm just my head won't shut off. But uh, so for me it works at night. Yeah, no,
0: that's awesome. Yeah, I'm always curious about that because I is as, as important as it is. And uh, Craig and I talk a lot about that. Um, it's something I still to today and want to get better at it. So I'm, it's it's an area I'm really even curious about because certainly what little I do of it now, like. It just brings so much value. So I'm always, you know, interested in kind of learning, you know, the intentions and the hows and whys. And and it is a great and some one of those things. I don't certainly we don't do enough of it. And so yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, so you and Desiree, you're going through school, she's becoming a doctor. So so where are we going from there? You guys are mid twenties, I guess, at this point and mm-hmm. starting to dig your roots yeah, deep. We
1: were we, we were following the track to be the quintessential New York City yuppie couple, right? Uh, we had our little dog that she could put in a pocketbook, you know, we had this, okay, we, at that point in time, we didn't, we didn't have while she was in medical school, we had a tiny studio with a Murphy bed and a six flight walk up. And she would yell all the time, not yell, like I'm joking, right? But she was like, I want to live like an adult. And I'm like, you don't work. We're never moving out of this apartment until you make money. So, yeah. you know, it was, it was a funny thing, but I loved that apartment, that little Murphy bed. And it was just, it was a perfect like New York setup, right? Um, everything's going really, really well. I graduated Columbia University. I received my MBA from Columbia and I was recruited by the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, uh, mm. which to tell you the truth, I hadn't even applied for but it was just the circumstances of where I worked, who I worked for. I had been on boards at a very young age um, and a bunch of other factors and a headhunter called me. So my wife and I go out to Abu Dhabi at that time. We fell in love with it. I mean, it was just, it was just, it was fantastic. Not only was the package amazing, but just, the the town and being so close to the sea and the cultural stimulation—it's a lot different than what we think of today. This was 1997, so Dubai didn't even have tall buildings at that time. Dubai was nothing, sure. you know. <laughs>
0: it's those pictures that you see of uh, it in the 90s—it's just like a desert—and then
1: today it's this metropolis. You know that 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 boat that that boat that uh, hotel that looks like a sailboat—it's called yeah. the uh, Burj Al Arab. I watched it being built. I mean, oh, wow. like, yeah, it was just so. But anyway, um, we decided, she said, you know what? This is perfect. It's good money, lots of vacation. I'm doing, I'm finishing my PhD. I'm writing my thesis. Let me finish my thesis. You go live out there. We'll, now, this was. This is where it all fell apart, right? Because we were going out there to save money. But every six weeks, we met in a different country as if we were just like living the great lifestyle. And so all the money just went, went right away, Right. So, um, but we both said we're young, we should travel, you know, and then when she finished her PhD, she defended it. She decided to move out, um, to the middle East with me and take a year sabbatical before going back to medical school. And that's pretty much when all hell broke loose, you know, in our lives. Um, it changed, changed everything from that, that point forward, uh, because to enter the country you have to go through a medical screening. And really they're testing you for um, contagious diseases like tuberculosis and sexual diseases and stuff like that. But she hadn't seen a doctor in a while, like gotten a real full physical. And I said, well, why don't you just get a full physical? Um, She, I had a reason for it because of certain pain she had and everything else. and. Lo and behold, right before her thirty-first birthday, they diagnosed her with late-stage breast cancer. And that, and this is this is still late '90s. Are we early 2000s? Nineteen ninety-eight.
0: So I feel like, and you would know better. Was that a time when breast cancer awareness was not as like today? It feels like all women hyper vigilant about it. Checked often was it a time? Are we talking? It was before that time.
1: Oh, it was it was hours. so yeah. before that time. And yeah, I we can't fault anyone. Like she sure. went to her gyn a year earlier with a lump in her breast, and she was twenty nine. She hadn't turned thirty yet. And he basically said, you know, you have large cystic breasts. It runs in your family. There's no history of breast cancer. I wouldn't worry about it. And she was so fit and she was jogging, and you know, they didn't have so many of the, the tests that they had today, but a woman that age was not going to go for a mammogram for sure. When we were in the Middle East, because she had a pain under her arm, they decided to do a needle biopsy, and I could tell by her face, I didn't know at the time any of this. I learned so much. But no fluid came out it from the biopsy, the needle biopsy. And she just went white. And then she explained to me, you know, if it w- really was a cyst, there would be fluid. If it's a solid tumor, there's a chance it's cancer. Now, the the unusual thing about all of this was 99% of it was normal tissue. It was the tail of the tumor that was cancerous that was near the lymph nodes. So she had 11 lymph nodes positive that, which meant it had already been, you know, within her body. There were no PET scans at the time. So, you know, it was only a CAT scan. Chemo was very basic, let's say. There weren't all the treatments they had today. Uh, But when she was diagnosed, and this is where so much changes in our life, one of the things I didn't explain about Desiree is she wasn't a judgmental person. And she wasn't judgmental about herself either. She only ever wanted to know she was doing her best. So she didn't know her MCAT scores. She didn't know her GPA from university. She just said, Robert, you fill those out on my my, you know, applications. I only ever want to know I'm doing my best. I don't want to see something that tells me I could have done better. I'm doing really? what I yeah, she was just that was now she had a, a difficult situation with, with her mom. So I think it comes from that. You know, her mom was 18 when she had Desiree, and I guess it was a little competition going on there. And there's something called the Jonas complex as well. It's very complicated. But so um, when Desiree was diagnosed, they broke the news to me. And then I told her and she said, Robert, I only want to know the next steps. I don't want to know how many lymph nodes. I don't want to know the size of the tumor. I don't want to know anything. I need you to step in and be the middle because I know enough to be dangerous to myself. To the point where she when she was studying to go to residency i would read the breast cancer chapters in her textbooks and i would summarize them for her so she had the information she would need for any potential question on an exam uh, but removing any of the things that would have maybe damaged her coping mechanisms and that's what's so important in this is a separate than we're talking about but I'm always so passionate about this. We all have the right to confront a disease as we want to and the treatment as we want to. We, the medical community should never take away someone's coping mechanisms. And we, can, we wound up seeing a lot of doctors that refused to abide by her rules and wanted to tell her everything. And we would just get up and walk out. You know, and then we start looking for another doctor to her. That's the way she needed to manage the disease. And if I was willing to take on that, that burden, which at the end, it wasn't a burden. It was a gift beyond, beyond measurement. Um, then so be it. And I never missed a treatment. I was there for, for every treatment. I, I wound up renewing my contract in, in Abu Dhabi. Cause she said, you know what? I like that lifestyle. I'm going to get chemo, and then we'll get on that pl- a plane that night. I'll be zonked out. And then when we get to Abu Dhabi, I'll rest for three weeks on the beach, and then we'll fly back and get chemo again. So all that money we were supposed to save, zero, zero. <laughs> zero. Um, but again, it was, it was teamwork. Um, we started having conversations that really expanded both of us. It was a level of intimacy, which I, I think is – somewhat unparalleled the things we talked about though she never wanted to use the words death or dying but we talked about the concepts of death and she became the founding director of palliative care at new york hospital while having metastatic breast cancer and i had to leave my career which was fine because she needed me to support her and it wasn't she was very self-sufficient up until the last two years but i wanted to make sure i could bring her the correct meals and get her her vitamins. And, you know, I I was like, no, I want you to succeed in your career. And that's where I learned about purpose because people ask me all the time. They're like, well, wasn't that hard? And, you know, like you knew you were on a train that we're all on trains that are gonna end eventually anyway. But um, the thing was, I realized that purpose is when passion comes in alignment with values. But you want to give the result away. You're not holding on to it for your own glory, and to see her succeed, see her smile, see her laugh with the dog—wow! I won the lottery every single time. And you know, then of course, things progressively got worse. Um, I learned that hope should not be future-focused at all, um, and I, I, I think. We make a mistake when we hope for a better future. Yes, we should have a goal. But what I learned, which was incredible and so invaluable for me and to me to recreate my life, was hope for today. Hope to make today the best day possible. And the problem with best is best is not 100%. And we have to give ourselves all a lot of leeway best is whatever you can show up with that day. You know, if you're you're a parent, which is also a caregiver, right? And and you have a new child or with Desiree, maybe, you know, I hadn't slept for 48 hours and my best was 10%. I was going to make sure that 10% meant something. I was going to give that 10% my all, but I couldn't give a hundred and I knew I couldn't give a hundred. So, um, you know, and we we moved on she she journeyed with metastatic breast cancer for 11 years which is pretty phenomenal back then because none of the drugs that exist today existed back then and her doctor did he was an oncologist he was just like a savant basically and he would mix a a, um, a prostate drug and a, this drug and he's like hey well just put all these things together don't mind but it's gonna slow it down and but then one day she just wound up being in the hospital and she had explained to me the difference between extending life and extending death. And there's a big difference there. She also was very clear on what quality of life meant to her. Something I think we should all think about. Like, what does quality of life mean to us? And are we pursuing that? So, I think she realized she would never go back to the type of life she wanted. She probably could have never worked if she would have survived um, that hospital visit. And she just turned to me and she said, Robert, I'm tired. And I said, OK, baby, rest. That was the last conversation we had. Because as soon as I transitioned to comfort care, because I knew that's what she was telling me, she went, she fell right into a coma, like within an hour. She just, you know, she had to let go. She had to let go. And, um, After she passed, the most amazing thing was the sensation of being lost, like truly lost. And not a sadness that my wife was not there because I understood the difference between extending life and extending death. And I learned about impermanence, that nothing happened to us. There was no no anger about the happening. It was an event that happened in her life. She lived a full life. And I say all the time, she lived a joyful life. And so for me, maybe we should measure life with the number, the moments of joy instead of the number of years, because there's a lot of people that are in their eighties and they're not happy. (laughs) They haven't had joy, right? So um, I look at that, I looked at that equation and I'm like, okay, I don't have that, but I'm, I'm lost. I don't know what my place is, my purpose is, my identity vanished. And that's when I realized that loss at its core, and I'm an acronym guy, so I say this all the time, loss is a lack of self identity and security because everything has now become vulnerable. And I had to grieve myself to rebuild my life. And that's where all the tools with from my dad, they helped me take care of Desiree. They helped me confront that in the best way possible. And th- those skills with everything that I learned with Desiree helped me rebuild my life. And that's what all my books are about. In different facets, they're all about the same thing, that it's choice. It's It's making conscious decisions because decisions will lead to our destiny. And so all of that taught me to be conscious, to be intentional and that regardless of adversity, joy exists all the time, which is completely different than happiness. Happiness is derived from something, whether it's intrinsic that we get a promotion, we do really well on something, or extrinsic, we buy a new car, but the happiness fades with the new car smell. Joy, on the other hand, is is really just bathing yourself in the wonder of life. In the it's being curious. It's not living in sunshine and rainbows at all, but it's realizing that this is just a um for lack of a better word, a magical journey of lots of unknowns, but we get to take the paintbrush or the chisel or whatever metaphor you want to use, and we get to craft it. We can't stop things from happening, but we can react to them. That's the whole Viktor Frankl, you know, man's search for meaning that, you know, between stimulus response. And it's true. That stimulus and that's the present moment, which is so hard to really understand. But that's the idea of bringing hope to today for the best day possible today. That keeps you focused on the reality. So that's that's a long winded answer to a question that you asked about this. Right? It's it's all.
0: I mean, it's freaking awesome, man. The the I want one thing. I wanted I would ask if you would dissect for me a little bit like you said a couple times and i would like to kind of hear kind of what you mean by this like quality of life versus quality of death like what 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 do you mean by that because that's that's kind of new
1: okay so um it's it's um extending life and extending death not not the 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 quality of life is just while you're undergoing in, in reality, quality of life is, is everything. But if you're confronting a disease, it's going to impact your quality of life. Well, what is the quality of life? What's the best quality of life you can have while managing that disease? This is all palliative care type stuff. But once you're able to define that, in my opinion, it's the medical community's job to help you attain that. So, if you have a heart problem, if you have diabetes, some something chronic, um, MS, cancer, how do you show up as the best possible and have the best life possible with that? So, that, that's quality of life. Gotcha. Ex- and, and that's just extend- back to you, what you
0: were saying about if you're only good for 10%, maybe because of this disease or something that you're contending with. If all you've got is 10% because of that, that like your quality of life is showing up the ability to show up to that, that
1: 10%. Exactly, make the most of that 10%. So you know, how do how do I do that? What do you what needs to be done? Is it pain medication? Is it assist food? There are so so many different things. I mean, my wife, Just to to give you an example, she had metastatic cancer in her liver, her spine and pelvis, her peritoneum, her small intestines, and her left lung. And she went to work every day. We traveled all around the world. She volunteered at a hospital in India. She said to her doctors, these are things I wanna do, help me do them. And it's, it's to have that open conversation. The difference between extending life and extending death is there's a point in time where the body can never recover. And so what are you, do, what are you doing at that point in time? And is it maybe because it's fear of saying goodbye so many different emotional aspects play into that. Um, and Desiree was very clear on, on what that was. And honestly, when she passed away, uh, it was about 10 days in total uh, that she was in a coma. But when she passed away, I asked the hospital, I don't know why. I'm a Roman Catholic, but I don't really practice. But And we spent a lot of time in India. I don't know where this came from. I said, can I wash her body and can I change her clothes? And they said, okay. When I turned her over, the bed sores on her back were absolutely in- incredible. And I realized yeah, her body couldn't have sustained any further treatments. And it's, that was a physical manifestation of extending life and extending death. Um, which is why I knew it was the right thing to do for her to let go at that point. Yeah.
0: That's, that's, yeah. Well, I honor you for staying true to your partnership the way you did through death. Not that, not that anyone would expect any different from anyone, but you know, that, I just, that's a, that's a thing to go through, you know, unimaginable, you know, it's, uh, but want to honor you for that, man. That's, that's. Oh, thanks. Yeah. That's, that's something to recommend the, uh, so how, how did you change in? in <laughs> so where do you go from here, man? Like this is, you know, because again, this, cause this gets into area or like, you know, so you've got this life partner now. And I love what you said about now you're in this lost state, lack of self, lack of identity. I believe you defined it. Like
1: where do we go from here? You know, that, that question you're asking is I think what a lot of people were asking during COVID and are asking now because of the impact on identity and the impact on life, uh, which is why I decided to write when I decided to write. But so there I am, I'm lost. What's the first thing I think? Oh, crap. I have a ton of debt. Let me go back to investment banking. Let me make my money didn't really care about life, kept my head down. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna make money. I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. But my perspective shifted, my values shifted, my my passion, everything, purpose, everything had shifted. And then one day I, I was sitting just really looking at myself and I said to myself, you can't be afraid of moving forward by not wanting to let go. That part of your life is closed in a parenthesis. And I thought of Tarzan, grabs the vine, has to let go of the vine, grabs the next vine or else he's going to get nowhere, right? So I sat there and I looked at, at my life and I said, well, what do I want to look back on? And that's what I started, that was my journaling prompt. What do I want to look back on? And I was always someone that stepped into the fire. And I wasn't, of course, at all here, I went back to Dubai. I was living in a five-star hotel because my company put me up in a hotel. So I didn't even have to buy anything. I didn't have to wash sheets. They were taking care of me and I had a great comfortable life. And I was like, you know what? I want to look back on that whole idea of stepping into the arena. And I'm like, what does that mean to me? Stepping into the arena? And I had always wanted to live in Italy. And I started toying around with the idea and every single thing that could possibly be the excuse as to why I shouldn't came up, you know, going to give up all this money. You don't speak the language. You don't have a house. You don't know anyone, all these. And then just one day I said, you know what? No, I want to look back on my life and see that I stepped into something. Because I learned life is short, I learned about impermanence, I learned that money couldn't save my wife, so why not attempt it? And I use attempt specifically here because I think today we have equated try with all the excuses why it could fail and therefore there's no accountability. You know what? I tried no, no, no. Let's attempt. Forget all the excuses. Attempt. Go all in, right? And that's what I did with Desiree. I went all in knowing she was going to die. So let me go all in. And I just showed up in Italy. I was teaching English for $8 an hour because I needed money. And I looked back on Desiree and I eating those hot dogs and peanut butter and you know, honey sandwiches and said, you know what? I'm investing in a new life. I needed to learn Italian. And I had thought, always thought to leave finance anyway. And I was interested in maybe going into sociology or something like that. So I went to life coaching school and I did it in Italian to force myself to learn Italian. Like the the first week or two, like, you know, I could barely say my name, but I forced myself to do it. And I was like, that's what I wanna be known for. And I live in the same town my great grandfather left. When he was 13 years old with four bucks in his pocket and he didn't know anyone in america so i look at that and i say well what a full circle moment and maybe it's dna oh, yes. in me maybe it's because of my dad and i learned at a very young age to do whatever was necessary to move forward but it wasn't out of anger anymore anger doesn't exist for me anymore and it, it was out of curiosity and wonder. And the question I'd say to myself is, instead of what if I fail? What if I actually pull it off? Actually, I would say, what, what if I F and pull it off? But you know, like, really, <laughs> I could have everything that I wanted, I, that I think I want at the moment for my journaling. And I had this whole picture of who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. The book, funny enough, the first book written, A friend of mine, who was actually a patient in the doctor's office when Desiree would go and get her chemo, and we became friends with her, um, told me I should write a book, I should write a book, I should write a book after Desiree passed away. And I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm just, I'm not there. You know, Desiree's story was on the front page of the New York Times, I went around speaking around the country for a little while, I'm like, I did that, you know. And then... In 2019, she just said, you know what? I've been holding on this for a long time. Remember all those stories I asked you to tell me? She's like, here's a 20 page outline of a book. And I just looked at it. When the pandemic hit, I realized, wow, everyone is in a way living what I lived. Adversity, not knowing where they are, feeling lost, uncertainty, fear, and in that i learned that there was joy all you have to do is lean into joy because it's our natural state do you you know that children laugh 300 times a day you know how many times adults laugh a day five we've buried ourselves and we've forgotten to lean into that joy so that's why i wrote the first book and then it just opened up pandora's box (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, what was, the, what was the first book? So, the first book is called Chasing Life, um, and it's basically mm. the love story of Desiree and I, and oh, wow. how we didn't allow cancer to color our lives. It was an accent on the painting itself, but it wasn't the color, the dominant color. And so, mm. it's, it's a love story. But it's showing how regardless of all the crap that was going on, we always found moments to have fun. Um, Yeah. Uh, Second and third books. Okay. So second and third books. So second book is what's called a modern day fable. Uh, I didn't know there was that type of category, but I wanted to write a story from my eight year old voice, but it's for adults. And... You know, there are books like that, you know, Who Moved My Cheese is the most famous type of book that's written more for a kid, but yet it's for an adult. Um, But it's called A Pimby Tale, where Pimby stands for possibility, imagination, magic, believing, and the Y is you. And so it's about an eight-year-old boy that is visited by a magical creature before his ninth birthday and teaches him life lessons about not being afraid to make mistakes, about taking care of the environment, a whole bunch of things about you know, controlling your, being aware of your thoughts, your efforts, and your actions. Uh, and so that was, that was that book. And the book I'm publishing tomorrow, well, it's the 27th, May 27th is tomorrow, um, is called Possibility in Action which is actually my personal hashtag, that is how I defined everything that happened in my life, that I want to take action. I always want to be in action to see and leverage possibilities. And so it's a little bit about my own background, but it's more, it's a journaling book so it's 52 weeks of very unusual stories two pages each with journaling prompts because i try to use everything as points of reflection so one of the stories in the book is i'm on the highway going coming back from rome and i'm at a toll booth because rome is still very old school you know there are no easy passes <laughs> so you know i'm waiting to pay the toll and i thought to myself wow Isn't this life? How many times do we ask ourselves if we want to pay the toll of the road we're still on? Should we question that? Should we get off the road we're on and and take an exit? Should we turn back around? But do we ever question what we're we're actually spending? Because we're spending time, we're spending energy. Is this road still the road we want to go down? and so then it has some journaling prompts for somebody and after 52 weeks hopefully it it shifts perspective and gets people to think a little differently it's all about neuroplasticity you know that's the whole reason for oh, neuroplasticity yeah. and myelination and all that other stuff right you have you have to do a push up to build your, your chest right you have to have discomfort in your brain to build new connections you know, for us, we're, we're, it's biological to be afraid, right? It's, it's biological to be in a comfort zone. You know, we, we had to protect our energy when we were running away from the dinosaurs for when we needed the energy to run away from the dinosaurs and stuff like that. So we don't need it anymore for sure, but that's sort of our default. So if we can push against that, and that's what I learned through journaling, if really, honestly, to tell you the truth, if it wasn't for journaling, at least for me, because journaling is not for everyone for sure, but if it wasn't for journaling, I wouldn't have such control over decisions and choices, intention, showing up as my best, all those types of things.
0: It's a, journaling is, we, talk, we started this conversation around clarity and it's, it's like a constant cadence of clarity, you know, uh, it's that work, it's the push up, right? It's, it's the up for clarity. Like you say, I love the analogy. I love the, I love the idea of the, I, I love the book, right? It's not an idea anymore, man. She's live. I, I love it. Yeah. And I, I, I you know, you and I talked a little bit offline, some of, some of kind of my world and thinking about that, right? Like everyone's got to go, like you said, get their, be, chisel their own piece of art, man. And like the, the only way you're going to do it is Spending the time doing it, like I say, just just like the push ups, like you say. So, Rob, I want to get you back on for sure because there's so much more depth here <laughs> that that uh, I knew we were we we're on a tight time crunch today, and we're juggling technical issues and all that stuff. But, um, man, I I love it. I, I'm I'm so happy to have met you and, and thank you for reaching out. Um, I guess for now, how can people, where where will people find your book, find you online or?
1: Sure. The, actually, the best thing to do is just go to my personal website, robertparty.com, because ev- everything is there. Um, there's a little explanation as well as to those little short stories I call musings. And um, there are all types of different things that are connected to musings where you could, you know, host an amusing dinner or uh, amusing leadership. It's a joke on the word amusing, right? Um, but that's that's the best place. That is the best place. And to be a guest again would be phenomenal because I love your show and it's just it's a thrill.
0: Yeah, no, thank you. And I know totally... Well, we got it. Yeah, we'll do some more because I want to jump into the books. I want to dissect them a little bit more. Uh, yeah, I'd love to do that. So, uh, but for now, man, thanks for coming on and sharing your story. I mean, man, I, I honor your, your journey, man. I really do. I mean, because it takes, you know, so much courage to do what you've done, right? Like you, you said it in so many words that you were willing to find your own path or challenge your, you know, these, these paths that are laid out for us. And like, like you said, you're, 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 challenging the toll and and all that man so i i love it man i I really do so thank you i i know you know even this little little start of our conversation today and it'll serve many so i appreciate you coming on thank you
1: excellent thank you all
0: right talk to you soon